hell did somebody think this up? Seriously, how did somebody think this up? It's it's one of those things that okay, let's see. I need to have a have a phase change. Uh, I know I'll use water as my my refrigerant, cooling right. refrigerant. Yeah, and I'll I'll increase the ability to make the phase change by putting it all under vacuum so that my boiling temperature will be low enough, and then I'll add some fancy stuff in to further increase the the uh, lower the flash point and then i'll drive the water back out of it with uh, i don't know let's use some steam i mean it's just crazy that somebody did all that stuff okay you recording clayton oh i am don't worry okay good no yeah. i'll listen to that twice <laughs> <laughs> are they loud when observation uh, only when they're going into their death rattle Oh. Which is when the uh, lithium bromide slurry starts, you know, the crystals start going through the concentrator pumps instead so, of liquid. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, really. That's, that's when that's when you see everybody scrambling like their hair is on fire, like holy shit! Because once they literally rock up, uh, well, you, ha you if you see an old absorber, you'll see on the on the concentrator pumps guys have used uh, acetylene torches to try and loosen it up to get it, you know, to bring it back. That's like CPR really? for a yeah, CPR for a absorption chiller. Well, I don't need to get too deep into it, but it's interesting. How do you get to that point? Like what, what went wrong to make that happen? You had a, a leak. So instead of leaking out, which is very visible, like a, a pressurized refrigeration chiller would be. Right. This is actually sucking air into the chiller, and as the uh, oh, so you don't have the vacuum pressure. You don't have a vacuum, yeah. so the, the concentrator sections on hotter and hotter and hotter until you finally bake all of the water out of the concentrator, and it's basically you know it's like pushing cement through the concentrator pumps. Well, I'll be damned. Yeah. Very interesting. Cool. Well, I think with that. We'll dive into it, huh? Sure. I know. All righty. Hey, guys. Welcome to VS Energy's BMS podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Rich Fish. And we actually have a special guest, Nick Taliska. So in today's podcast, we will be diving into a little side series discussing mechanical equipment. And today's segment is chillers. Now, before we dive into the chillers, and I know you've you've heard a little bit of discussion about absorption chillers before we we started this. Let's let Nick Taliska give a little bit of a background about himself. And you you may already be familiar with him if you've listened to our commissioning podcast. He uh, he plays a large role on our commissioning podcast. But Nick, do you want to give these guys a little bit of background? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Clayton. My name is Nick Taliska. I uh, operate a small consulting company called Applied Facility Science. We're heavily involved in performance contracts and my role specifically is getting involved at the end of projects, mainly in the measurement and verification phases, but also early upfront so we can make sure that we help companies to verify the savings that they've proposed and have designed for and installed. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much. So um, I guess now we'll dive into today's segment, which is chillers. And you may be wondering why chillers is a part of the BMS podcast series. And we thought it was a worthy discussion because obviously in the BMS world, a lot of people interact with chillers 
And I don't know, I'd, I'd like to think that to, to have a properly operating BMS system, you also want A, the correct chiller for the system and B, uh, a quality chiller for the system to let everything run smooth and nice. So that's why we kind of grouped it into the BMS podcast series. And I think they're very interesting machines themselves. So to get started, it might be worth kind of starting at the basics. And I don't know, I think I'll let Mark go into this one. Just give us a quick outline of like how, how a chiller works, the physics behind it. Oh boy. Okay. So the purpose of the chiller itself is to remove heat from the building and take it to an external location. And to do that, we use the mechanical refrigeration cycle, which includes a compressor driven by some motive force. So in a closed system, the compressor brings in low temperature, low temperature, low pressure gas and adds work. That work can be added by an electric motor, a steam turbine. Uh, it can actually even be provided by a, you know, a natural gas motor. The compressor produces high temperature, high pressure gas. The gas phase transitions to the condenser where heat is removed. The condenser can be cooled either by water or air. It really doesn't matter. But the refrigerant product is low temperature, high pressure liquid. The liquid reaches a pressure reducer, creating a pressure drop. That pressure reducer can be an orifice, a thermostatic expansion valve, a back pressure valve, or other flow control valve. It passes through the orifice into the evaporator where the refrigerant boils off by removing heat from the chilled water system, typically inside a tube bundle, and then returns back to the compressor as a low temperature, low pressure gas, and it's a continuous cycle. So that refrigeration cycle is, is typical for every kind of compressor, whether it's reciprocating, centrifugal, screw, scroll, it doesn't matter. And there are variations, obviously, between um, pressure reducers, the, you know, a typical home, a residential refrigeration cycle will use an orifice and on a larger chiller you'll have a thermostatic expansion valve typically and then with additional advances in modern chillers there are other refrigerant production and metering devices that are that are used including application of variable frequency drives and inlet veins and those kinds of things that control refrigerant flow that's really the basics yeah thanks a lot and i don't know something that helps me visualize it or at least you know think of the concept is it <laughs> It's essentially this, it, it is the same cycle as how your refrigerator works at home, right? Or, Absolutely. you know, a window shaker. It's, it's that same concept just exploded extremely large. And instead of using air, well, it could use air as well, but instead of, you know, generating cold air for a refrigerator and air conditioner, you're generating cold water. And on the other end, you could be using air or water. To reject heat into it, right? Yeah, 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 Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting, Clayton, you know, I mean, chillers are, I mean, just as much of a, of a chemical engineering marvel than they are mechanical and otherwise. So that's what it's all about is just getting this phase change to allow heat to be transferred from one location to the other. Oh, and yeah. During these hot times of years, this is when I really appreciate mechanical refrigeration. Oh, absolutely. And it is, it's, I don't know, the concept is genius. Someone 
was able to figure out if we change the pressure of a we're using refrigerant, whatever, if it's I don't know what I don't even know what today's modern 410 or something. Um, one it is 134A. Okay. Someone decided this or our refrigerant is going to if you change the pressure in it, it'll change the phase, what which will allow us to take the heat, it'll take the heat out and out of uh the, the water you're trying to cool, right? And I don't know, it's just it's such a it, genius concept to be able to generate cold air or water, the refrigeration cycle. It amazes me when you look at it on a you know piece of paper, like how did somebody think of this? Well, I, bow, I bow down to Willis Carrier every day that it's over 90 degrees here in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rich. And that was kind of my first question here. I know, I know that the, uh, one of the first episodes of this podcast, you guys talked about the history of I believe the thermostat, right? And we got yeah. Egyptian times with bellows and all that. And I was intrigued, but is there any besides carrier, you know, before that, there was ice boxes, right? Ice harvesting. So the history of mechanical refrigeration is fairly new in the timeline of humanity. Well, of broad base application, absolutely. Well, and in the timeline of humanity, it's very small there were a number of forays into mechanical refrigeration in the 1700s using multiple working fluids, including ether, various esters, turpentine, uh, and a number of you know, organic fluids, but uh, really Warren, I think it was Warren Carrier, right? Willis. Willis, sorry, uh, is credited with the commercial viability of large-scale chillers and you know before that there were you know smaller refrigerators but nothing scaled up to the size that would be suitable for commercial buildings and you're right nick i actually bought an old house many many years ago that had a built-in ice box where the ice guy the ice person would open the outdoor door to the refrigerator which was about 16 by 16 put a block of ice in and then underneath it on the inside you had a couple of compartments and a drip pan where the ice changed phase and uh, gave up or sucked up heat and gave you know produced water. And the ice guy would deliver. You know, you'd never have him come in the house. Just stick the ice in the ice box. Oh, in many northern states, you know, there's uh, quite a history of ice harvesting and how that process all worked, and a lot of amazing photographs as well. So that's great. We got back to the 1600s then with the little history. That's awesome. Well, actually, you mentioned the ancient Egyptians and the thermostat type thing. The Egyptians actually were the first ones known to apply air conditioning in the sense that they would hang wet mats over their doorways. And as the water evaporated, it cooled the air inside their dwelling. So it goes back as far as the Egyptians here as well. That's impressive. I love it. So yeah. evaporative cooling. Yeah. Not understanding maybe what's going on, but just seeing the the effect of it. Well, even just hmm. to 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 come to that realization, like obviously, yes, when I sweat, my water the, the sweat evaporates and I cool down, but to you know, <laughs> to think this is what's happening and this is what's cooling me down let's apply it to our, our dwelling, I think is genius. I love it. You know, people take it for granted. That's the, that's the science behind it in a way or part of it, you know? 
phase change. So with that being said, and that was obviously really interesting, diving back into chillers a little bit, then there's, I don't know, you could, you, you could break it down into two different types of chillers, I guess, if you wanted to call it this, air-cooled and water-cooled. And what, what really, like, in my point of view, every industrial facility that can would use a water-cooled chiller. But what's the, it's pretty obvious what the difference is and what's the different applications for each. So let, let, we'll back up just a little bit. Yeah. The chiller efficiency is uh, the primary driver of chiller efficiency or a primary driver of chiller performance, not necessarily the inherent efficiency of the machine, is the amount of lift required to produce liquid refrigerant and transition it through the machine. So when we talk about lift, it's the pressure between the pressure differential between the condenser and evaporator, which is directly related to the temperature difference. Right. So when we use air-cooled condenser, meaning refrigerant is flowing through the coils of the condenser and uh, that's outside and dry bulb air, the only thing you can transfer is dry bulb. There's no evaporative cooling involved. Then you're, you're hamstrung or performance limited by whatever the outside air dry bulb temperature is. When you go to a cooling tower and use the, basically uh, the wet bulb temperature of the outside air becomes the limiting factor, you get a significant difference because it's very rare that dry bulb and wet bulb temperature is equal outside and typically you have a 20, 30, 40, 50 degree difference between dry bulb and wet bulb temperature. And, and using a cooling tower capitalizes on the difference between dry bulb and wet bulb to reduce the amount of lift that the compressor has to do work for. And, and you know, my example of why is that important, I don't know if anyone besides me on this podcast ever had a pump for their bicycle tire where you would actually have to pump the tire up by hand. But in what I'm I was raising kid, my hand. Common. Yeah. So, <laughs> me too, actually. So you would, okay, now we have to pump up our bicycle tire. Well, the pump is a positive displacement pump, right? So it always pumps the same volume of air with every every time you raise the handle or lower it. So the first five or six strokes, very easy, right? We have no lift. We have no differential pressure. As the tire gets more full, the each successive stroke becomes more difficult and more work needs to be applied. And as you get towards the end, the tire is nearly full. It's pretty darn hard if you're seven or eight years old to pump up your bicycle tire. That's the the same kind of effect that we have as we increase the chiller lift. That last amount of work is um, cube function based on the, every time we, we uh, double the pressure, we cube the work. So hmm. it becomes more and more inefficient as the amount of lift goes up. And so the water-cooled right? Chillers lower the lift required. Correct. Right? And that is why, so then what does that mean for when you're thinking between an air-cooled and a water-cooled chiller? So as we go between air-cooled and water-cooled chillers, um, now it becomes the, the other variables include construction cost, maintenance cost, operating cost. So in general, water-cooled chillers with their associated cooling tower, filtration, condenser water pumps, 
suction strainers, all that stuff, two bundles that need to be cleaned require higher maintenance, but they are dramatically more efficient. Okay. And other reasons I, I've seen the, the air-cooled favor over water-cooled was like, like Mark said, uh, lower first cost of installation. You can put them different places where water-cooled systems cannot go, like on roofs. They right. can be isolated more and less dependent on other infrastructure as well. But again, the life cycle cost are a main driver in, in purchase decisions when it comes to if you do have a choice between the two. And capacity as well. You can, That's you right. can uh, have much greater capacity with water-cooled chillers than you can with air-cooled simply because of it, the amount of condenser fans you would have to have on an air-cooled chiller for it to, you know, be a 1,500-ton machine. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't know where the cutoff point is where you, you, you can't get a, an air-cooled chiller that goes above a certain amount of tonnage uh, because physically right. it, it would have so many fans, uh, the size of it would become ridiculous. Yeah, I can't remember the the biggest size air cooled equipment I've ever seen. I don't know why I'm thinking 250 tons, but I mean, it, you know, how that much sounds bigger? about where I feel like I'd expect it to be. And it seems like air cooleds are well in something that would be used as like temporary, maybe well, more you, often. You, temporary, and again, it goes to what Rich said. There are many, many places. I mean, go to an office building. They don't have a, a yeah, significant true. amount of uh, maintenance staff. They don't have uh, and or they outsource maintenance. I mean, an air-cooled, every every residence practically, if they're not geothermal, has an air-cooled condenser if they have central air. And even you know a window shaker, that's an air-cooled condenser. So people are very uh, familiar with that. And you know, by and large, an air-cooled condenser will run a lot of years even if you don't do the maintenance, no, it'll run to, until it pukes, until it's dead, but it will still run. If you don't do maintenance on a cooling tower every season, the strainers plug, the nozzles plug, and you'll be out of work. Uh, you know, the, the entity will no longer be able to cool until you do a major shutdown, clean everything out, get it up and running again. So even when you do have a cooling tower, especially in a critical facility, there's usually redundancy, either of chillers or cooling towers or both. While we were talking, a, a quick web search shows that uh, there are air-cooled machines out there right around 500 tons. Yeah, I think McQuay just started uh, or building those things too. It's hmm. a pretty big air-cooled uh, chiller. So oh, yeah. co compressor types, air-cooled, are they just like reciprocating compressors or... Actually, um, there are now air-cooled, mag-bearing, centrifugal chillers. Really? Yep. That's impressive to me. I don't know why. It just seems that's impressive. I don't know. See, I'm impressed. I see a lot of them now, too, that are screws. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. Well, talking about compressors then, let's dive into that a little bit and maybe... I don't know if it'll be more specific to water-cooled chillers or not, but there's obviously a handful of different types of compressors that can be on a chiller. It could be re reciprocating, centrifugal, screw. Um, 
Any other ones? What happened to scrolls? Do they still, uh, I mean, I know they're smaller. You usually see them in what, under 150 ton units or yeah, so. Uh, yep, exactly. So the scroll is different than like a reciprocating technically? Yep. Yeah, it, it, is. it actually is a, a rolling scroll, positive displacement rolling scroll inside of usually fully oh. hermetic housing that, you know, if you can think of any mechanical equipment, it would be like a rotary engine where there's a suction side and then a discharge valve. And as that scroll rolls around the inside of a cylinder, it compresses the gas. So it's different than a screw too, then, whereas a screw would be yeah, more a screw like, would a, be like a, a superchargers uh, or something, correct. right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. So it is different. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what are maybe going through that and I we got I got to add uh, scroll to my list, but what are some like if I'm looking in an industrial facility for whatever, what like where does that decision made between what compressor type I want or do I not care that much as long as I get a 500 ton chiller that meets the load or is there a lot of decision and okay, why are we choosing one compressor type over another. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that go into that from the standpoint of uh, longevity, maintenance, mm -hmm. uh, efficiency, initial cost. I don't know about you, Mark, but I, I don't see a lot of new recip machines going in anymore. I don't know if recip is kind of fading, but most of what I see going in in, in the bigger chillers are typically centrifugals. I would agree. Um, yeah. We see reciprocating machines limited almost exclusively to low temperature applications like food storage or food processing. Right. Okay. Uh, otherwise, that they're really, uh, you know, they, they've fallen out of mainstream application for commercial building air conditioning. Now, is that mainly because of the changes in refrigerant from low pressure to high pressure? Uh, change. Changes in ref in refrigerant, but I think also enormous advances in longevity of other chiller types, especially going to oilless machines. There for a long time, you really had to work hard to damage a uh, a reciprocating compressor, and you know go back to when we started in the industry. Rich maintenance folks, operations folks were scared to death to hear the sound of a chiller surging, a centrifugal chiller surging, right? Yeah. Because the next sound would be, uh, you know, the dull, heavy clunk or explosive failure of that chiller. Yeah. So now with advances in A, the primary design of the chillers and also the extreme, I mean, the amount of, uh, safety and self-diagnostics and self-regulation that goes on inside a modern chiller is is absolutely unbelievable. So, you know, they basically keep themselves from getting into a position where they're in surge mode, or if they do go into surge mode, nobody's running to pull a disconnect. They they regulate their their way out of it. Yeah. Yeah. My first actual exposure to refrigeration and I know, Mark, you've probably run into it in some applications, was actually old, uh, like 1930s, 1940s, reciprocating compressors running ammonia as the refrigerant gas. 
right? Which is a pretty uh, actually efficient refrigerant gas, but unfortunately, it's a very dangerous, dangerous refrigerant. Very dangerous, right? And it, it's my grandfather actually uh, on one side was a refrigeration mechanic for ammonia systems, and he actually ended up dying of emphysema caused by repeated exposure to ammonia. But you know, interestingly, those machines, even those machines were susceptible to slugging. And when we talk about slugging, that's when liquid actually makes its way back to the compressor. To the compressor. So those machines, you know, early on, if you slug the machine, it would end up with the, either a broken or bent connecting rod and then the, you know, catastrophic failure. So those machines were designed in with cylinder heads that were spring-loaded so that the cylinder head would actually lift off the compressor to relieve pressure in the event a uh, liquid came back and prevent the catastrophic failure by, you know, bending a connecting rod or breaking a crank that would destroy the compressor. That's pretty smart. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, those old, uh, those old reciprocating machines from uh, back in those days, they actually almost looked like a modification of a, uh, a fuel air fuel engine yeah they look like big old flatheads yeah. you know really <laughs> yep no shit. so out there if i understand we're seeing less recips out there less reciprocating compressors out there at the high end and correct me if i'm wrong but when you get up above a thousand tons you're probably looking at centrifugal machines equally rotary screws i know centrifugals go up higher in tonnage right but I think rotary screw is probably your next, you know, large commercial efficient machine out there. I, I, I would say that's probably yeah, I'd have right. To agree. See, I always thought, and I don't, maybe I, I again, I'm, I'm not too first in chillers, but it, to me, it always seemed like I would use a screw compressor, right? A screw chiller. If it was a um, cooler application, like I'm generating colder water for instance, for whatever reason, processing or not. Is Maybe that that's where you saw some slide. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, no. have, you know, very high compression ratios. They do have fewer moving parts. So I think on the maintenance side, maybe there's some view that they are easier to keep going depending on, you know, your facility staffing, but you know, they're all very complicated machines though. Right. Right. But then in your, I think your scroll can, your scroll compressor technology, like I said, I think I don't know if you go more above 150 tons on those, but you know, so that, that'd be your lower range of, I guess, chiller choices or compressor options. And I'm sure re recips are still being made, but um, oh, yeah. like the guys were saying, just better, more economical, efficient choices to be made. Yeah, I mean, I see a lot of centrifugal chillers out there for where you know. Or wherever I go, so. And, and you know, screw machines a great machine, and it probably can provide lower chill water temperatures, but they are painfully loud. I mean, just like howling machines, and typically see them in acoustic enclosures. And noise, especially in a commercial building, is always a consideration. Right. Well, I did not know that, Mark. Me probably did I. more than I, as far as the, the the rotary screws. I thought they were kind of uh, touted as being, you know, vibration free. And I mean, I know they're. 
vibration free, yes, but loud. Yeah, but very well, high pitched, very <laughs> high pitched sound coming out of those. Well, and like so, a, a rotary screw is a is a positive displacement compressor it as is. opposed to a centrifugal, which is not. Right. I don't know that that makes a difference probably in noise a lot too. Yeah, I mean, if you ever go to a car show, and you know, I always go back to car applications. Go listen to a car with a blower on it. Right. When it winds up, I mean, it's painfully loud, and you're basically the same process in reverse. You're just looking at instead of it compressing refrigerate, uh, compressing air, it's compressing refrigerant gas. Right. And much bigger, um, so yeah, it can be can be pretty loud. So this is where you're supposed to make your your pitch for mag bearing centrifugal chillers, then, because they're quiet and there's no oil, right? <laughs> well, this well is where I say that I didn't recognize that screws were so loud because kids always wear hearing protection when you're in mechanical rooms. That's true. Otherwise, you end up like me. <laughs> yeah, I resemble that remark as well. <laughs> I did want to talk about this hermetic versus semi-hermetic and just impress you with the root of that word, those terms. is Yeah, hermit. impress me. Well, okay, it's hermit. It comes from the word hermit, which means isolated from the world. So a fully hermetic compressor is, you know, the compressor and the motor that drives the compressor are fully sealed within a capsule. And, you know, when something goes wrong with it, you just replace the whole thing. So it's fully sealed from the outside world, less contamination and some other benefits. And then the semi-hermetic is, you know, you can, it's still, you know, separated, but there are seals and you can take, you know, the top off and repair parts inside. Now that's about all I know, but I did like the hermit part. Yeah. I didn't know the hermit part. That's uh, and I really haven't read, you know, run into them. When I think of a hermetic compressor, I mean, I'm thinking very small, but am I wrong there? I want to say I would like a hermetic compressor to me is a reciprocal, a little reciprocating compressor on your refrigerator or I don't a know. scroll or a or, scroll or okay. a scroll. Yeah. Like the, uh, the air handling units on the project we just did are both scrolls. One is fixed. Oh, speed, you're right. One's variable yep. speed. Yep. So you're right, but they are still fully hermetic and, and basically in that size, you know, they're about 12 and a half tons a piece. Okay. They're, they're the size of like a uh, 15 gallon garbage can and they'll last for a long time. And, you know, the, the upside of that is they're always ready to start at a moment's notice, have belly heaters on them, ready to, you know, to, to keep the, uh, refrigerant separated from the oil and can run down to relatively low temperatures. I've always understood too that scrolls are uh, a little more forgiving as well. They, they, they can, they can take some adverse conditions without damage. Well, uh, there's no connecting rod. Basically yeah, that's true. Is, is much stronger inside the scroll from an inherent design uh, structure. So, and those would be the two that are general, those are hermetic compressors. See, it's funny. I've had this debate or conversation with a lot of people on what is hermetic and what is semi-hermetic. Uh, I really, I really <laughs> like the, the, the little trivia stuff. So uh, I'm going to remember that hermit thing, Nick. Yeah. 
Well, that that makes perfect sense, Hermit. I like to contribute. Away. Yeah, that's <laughs> great contri- contribution. So then you would say like a um, uh, see, I think I've even had this argument or discussion with Mark. Like a centrifugal chiller, right? Is semi hermetic then? Uh, you can get them both ways. Wouldn't that? Would not that be just an open? Is that the other dis, uh, classification? An here? open drive? Right. Yeah. So you got seals and stuff that that's right. being sealed or working. Right. Right. And I think that's was Mark's point about the you know fully hermetic systems. You cannot operate them for a while, but then start them up and you know everything's contained in there. But you do the same with something with mechanical seals. You know, you do need that lubrication. I guess that's one reason why. I don't know. It's not so difficult to lose your charge in your automobile's air conditioning system. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, would a mag bearing be different than a regular centrifugal chiller? As in that classification, it could be. It could be different because in in the traditional classification, traditional machines, you could get a fully hermetic or semi hermetic or even you know years ago an open drive centrifugal machine hmm. very interesting so you know pick a date you know a 1970s machine uh fully hermetic when you had a motor burnout okay so what happens over time insulation in a motor breaks down blah 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 and, and uh so the motor uh, either because it had a failure of refrigerant or failure of lubrication so a hermetic machine is bathed in um, refrigerant to cool it. Yeah. So the motor heat all goes into the refrigerant as well, and it's uh, the bearings are all lubricated by oil. So when that compressor, for whatever reason, uh, the motor fails, the insulation would burn, creating acid, and that uh, contaminant goes through the entire compressor system in seconds. So your uh, evaporator section, condenser section, everything is contaminated. <clears throat> and therefore, you know, when you overhaul it or replace the motor, you have to do a complete cleaning purge, everything of the entire compressor system. Now, once you turn that into semi-hermetic or open drive and they're segregated, a motor failure isn't the same level of catastrophe as with a hermetic uh, okay. System. And that's where I think that's where I, you, you kind of answered where I was going with that uh, mag bearing. If you were to have a motor failure, you don't have any refrigerant contamination, but on a traditional centrifugal chiller, you would because your oil and refrigerant are used to cool the motor. Correct. And that's Correct. where the difference would be. At least well, where I saw it. I mean, there's a lot of differences, but that's right. Yeah. Okay. What about, I'm just moving along, high pressure and low pressure machines. So again, I, to me, like your traditional mag bearing centrifugal chiller is technically a low pressure machine? Uh, uh, well, traditional, when you, uh, uh, current uh, construction mag bearing centrifugal chillers are predominantly low pressure machines. Yeah, okay. And you can, okay, so you can get them high pressure or low pressure. Different manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Is there benefits? Largely, okay. um, 
there are arguable benefits in both directions from both efficiency and uh, probability of leaks. I mean, you have to you have to weigh the pros and cons in each from each manufacturer before you say, oh, definitively, here's what it, you know I would I would use in any given application. Okay. Yeah, I'm a little. I this this was an interesting uh, item to me. So I didn't know, Mark, if like different types of chillers had classifications, but the way you kind of just explained it, I could want a centrifugal chiller and say, "Oh, I want a low pressure version." No. Okay. It, it's it's primarily manufacturer segmented. You know, um, some manufacturers are stuck directly in uh, low pressure refrigerants. There are manufacturers that make uh, high pressure centrifugal machines, but predominantly you're going to find low pressure refrigerants and centrifugals, and it's all based on refrigerant type. That's where I thought this was more connected to refrigerant, you know, legislation and changes in the industry over the last decades. Are we saying because like high pressure? If you have, well, maybe I'm maybe I'm thinking wrong, but like high pressure obviously leaks out. <laughs> And low pressure leaks in, in a way, right? Or no? No. They no. both leak out, but okay. one's, you know, at 100 pounds and one's at 10. The one with the 100-pound uh, differential pressure between ambient and internals has a higher probability of leaking. But right. if you go to a, a hermetic or semi-hermetic, well, then do we really care? Um, you know, it's not like we're designing shaft seals now. Um, right, right, right. Okay. So, you know, it becomes uh, all based on your refrigerant and, and, and inherent uh, design and refrigerant selection. Is there a movement in the industry towards one direction or the other? You know, are chillers getting more high pressure or are they getting more low pressure? Uh, generally more low pressure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was interesting. Never really gave that much thought. Yeah, I know. I have some friends that are eight, like HVAC technicians. And yep. um, we like to ar- not argue, but he likes to, s- when he's out in the field, he likes to send me some trivia questions. You know, what is this? What is, you know, what's going on? You know, he likes to try to, he likes to outsmart me. And he does sometimes, you know, we, we got our fair share of each way. But that was one, uh, he, you know, is this a high pressure or low pressure? Um, he always sends me it's obvious now, but in college I would get photos of, you know, compressors. What type of compressor is this? What type of chiller is this? So it, it, there's a lot to it that it's just, to me, really interesting. You know, even having the distinction, like you said, between high pressure and low pressure. What well, is it? sounds like a great buddy to have. Yeah, it is. It's fun. We, we quiz each other. So <laughs> it's, it's really interesting, but I don't know. I thought I'd throw that in there because it's, I think valuable to have the discussion about this stuff because, you know, if you're an engineer listening, it's it's important to know this stuff and you're generally not taught this stuff in college or maybe in industry even but you know if you're a technician this is stuff you might know like the back of your hand you know so i just thought well, it'd be and good. i'm sure this would tie in with the you know maintainability and cost yeah. of the the machine as well so yep. important considerations yeah definitely so what about um i think this will be an interesting conversation too i i, I know mark's viewpoint on this i would say but single versus multiple compressors on a chiller 
I can't say I, I see the industry swaying either way. Some manufacturers have multiple compressors on a chiller and some have one big one. It, you know, benefits and downsides to each. What do we think about it? Well, a lot of that's going to depend on the uh, the type of compressor, whether the compressor is a multi-stage, whether it's variable speed. I mean, having single versus multiple, depending upon how the compressors are operated, is going to affect your turndown capability, your ver- your ability to vary the capacity. As- uh, that's true. And then, you know, go back a few years and, okay, I need to pick a number, 800 ton chiller. You would get a centrifugal with a single casting, you know, the size of a Volkswagen right. Beetle on top of it. And that was your chiller. With the advent of mag bearing chillers, initially they were available, the compressor sections were available up to 350 tons. So if you wanted a 800 ton machine, you would get a couple of tube bundles with three 350 ton variable speed, variable volume compressors parked on top of it and be able, at that point, you could turn down to probably 5% of total capacity by just using one compressor with a variable speed drive on it. So, you know, it's, it all is based on evolution of technologies and there is some value to having redundancy by design uh, in compressors. And you can do the same thing with, you know, if I have screws, you can have multiple screws on a single water cooled set of two, two bundles. And that's all good as compared to, you know, in the past where you had, you know, if you had 800 tons, the best you could do is get two, maybe 600 ton machines, 800 ton load, get a couple 600 ton machines so that you could limp along on a design day if you had one compressor out. Where nowadays, you know, if I lose one compressor, if you have N plus one or N plus two redundancy, you just keep moving right along. And the same considerations for air-cooled chillers as well. And, and like Rich was talking about, you'll either, you know, they'll have multiple compressors for redundancy or for actually staging the load and serving it in the most efficient way they can right. within that single unit. Yeah, and I might be, again, a little biased, just, um, you know, where I started and what I learned, you know, when I got into the industry. But, like, I'm a, I don't know, it it seems so smart to have like multiple compressors on a mag bearing chiller for a myriad of different reasons that like Mark and you guys already outlined as compared to one big, you know, whatever 500, even if it's a 500 ton chiller, you know, have one big compressor. I'd rather have a mag bearing with two 250 ton compressors on it. So you let in Clayton with the kind of alluding to uh, that Mark had a, a definitive opinion yeah, I feel like he's a multiple compressor kind of guy. I don't know. Same thing for the redundancy. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, Mark, is that fair? It is that absolutely fair. I think, and you know, I'm a, I'm a, I, I will confess, I'm a mag bearing centrifugal yeah. disciple slash fanatic <laughs> proponent, whatever you want to call it. But you know, the current threshold for uh, manufacturing is basically a 350 ton footprint for a compressor. Now, if you say I want 100, 
and 25 ton chiller, you're still going to get that same casing, the same everything, but it's a, you know, it's the size of a, a, a couple of good sized microwaves and you stick that on top of a, a, you know, the tube bundle and you're ready to go, but you want 800 tons or a thousand tons. Okay. You'll get three compressors. If you want 1500 tons, you get five compressors. That's there's not really any better way to do it. And from a, a cost perspective, manufacturing costs and sales costs by using that one set of castings, compressors, turbines, everything, it, it's very easy and efficient from a cost perspective to build larger and smaller machines, you know, interchangeability of parts, all those things. It, it, it's really, really cost effective. And even to use this, you know, those same mag bearing compressors, whether, you know, we won't name manufacturers, but there are multiple manufacturers that build retrofit kits for existing centrifugal tube bundles. So you can unbolt your, your old compressor and put on a, a rack of three or four mag bearing compressors. And now I have a new mm. uh, mag bearing machine without buying all that iron for the tube bundles again. Sure. Very interesting information. Never quite thought about it like that with the new mag bearing chillers. You know, the the interesting thing too, like Mark's talking about retrofit, it, I didn't realize how, like say I have a, um, whatever, I guess it'd be a centrifugal chiller. It could be a, a screw that I want to retrofit to mag bearing centrifugal. I didn't realize how critical, like you really have to clean those to get all of that oil out though. I, I didn't ever realize it's so critical to have it like mm-hmm. perfectly clean, you know, or else you, any kind of oil um, contamination, I guess you would call it. I, I just, uh, you know, it's, um, it's great. They run oilless, but I never realized how damaging oil can be to them. If you were doing a retrofit. Well, you have to look at, you know, okay. It's magnetic bearing, which, by definition, we levitate the yeah. the impeller shaft, but there's a microprocessor that controls the, the radial runout of those bearings um, 60 times a second. So it changes the current to the magnets surrounding the shaft to maintain it within its tolerances. And I don't know the tolerance offhand, but it is extremely small. So if you have anything in in that refrigerant that flows back that won't fit in that tolerance, it's it'll be a bad day. So you're right. The, the cleaning is essential. You know, it's basically uh, operating rooms, clean room, laboratory environment inside yeah. those compressors. And I I guess it's worth noting. I don't know if we did or not, Mark. Um, a mag bearing chiller, and oh, I, we'll we'll get into this too in a little bit. It doesn't require any oil, and that's a big upside to going with that technology. Correct. Yeah. So I guess we could dive into that if you guys want to, just talking a little bit about, or if Mark wants to, since he's the he's the fanatic of mag bearing chillers. You know what? What are the why? Why do people? Why would you say do a mag bearing chiller compared to your whatever? Do you want to call it your standard centrifugal chiller? Compressors so- are a lot smaller. You want me to jump into this? Yeah. Okay. So the driver for compressing refrigerant or any compressor is compressor tip speed. So, you know, our, our 
turbine itself requires a minimum tip speed to be able to compress to pressures high enough uh, to, to then go into the condenser section and make liquid. So days past, we had limitations based on the uh, lubrication of the impeller shaft. We had, a, we had a critical speed that we couldn't exceed because the motor and impeller of the turbine had to reach critical speed, but we had to do that while maintaining a low shaft speed. Consequently, we had very large impeller uh, turbines to be able to make that compression happen. Now, we've gone to basically magnetically levitating the impeller and motor shafts, so there's no lubrication required, and we have a almost frictionless uh, drivetrain and we can turn that motor and the connected compressor wheel at much higher RPMs than you could previously where you had a motor connected to a drivetrain that had a bull gear, drive gear, and um, all the lubrication associated with it. And that parasitic loss and limitation of lubrication kept your uh, shaft speeds down. So now we can run much more efficiently um, at much higher RPMs in the compressor wheels, instead of being two feet or three feet in diameter, are eight inches, 10 inches, 12 inches in diameter, and you know run much more efficiently with no parasitic loss of the transmission section of the centrifugal compressor. So better at part loads as well. I mean, big improvements here. Do you have any equivalent you know, numbers? I was also I was curious when did these mag bearing chillers really, you know, starting to be, uh, I guess, installed and more common in the market? Oh, Pretty new, right? Probably in about the what the last eight no years kidding. or so. Yeah, that's that's brand new then, you know. It's I still get there's I I feel like there's still yeah. a lot of pushback in the industry for that technology. Yeah, I could be wrong, but yeah. Um... As like an operator or a maintainer, facilities person, maybe, maybe not. Well, but but that is um, just like any anything else. It's a function of what you've learned in the industry through your experience. Yeah, that's you true. Know, I, I, you know, initially, and I'd say it's probably been about ten years. And uh, Nick, we actually put one up in New London, two of them. Uh, so. Initially, I was fascinated just from the tr the real perspective of, okay, we have a, a frictionless environment, and now instead of our, you know, 1,750 or 3,500 RPM motor, we, we're running everything at eight 9,000 RPMs, which, you know, would be unheard of with a, um electric motor, and, you know, now I have to go to a bull gear, and it, it just couldn't happen. So... My initial fascination, you know, and obviously interest has been overcome by the uh, performance of these chillers at part load and at um, at full load and life cycle. So when you see what what happens as they start to go to part load, they want to that they are controlled to maintain the pressure rise across the the compressor and the condenser pressure, and they have uh, 
IGVs, inlet guide vanes, and a variable speed drive. So they can regulate not only the compressor tip speed, but also the uh, amount of refrigerant gas that flows through the, the uh, compressor section to maintain my, head, my leaving pressure, my head pressure, uh, to, to whatever it has to be, metering the exact amount of refrigerant to, to uh, maintain the leaving liquid uh, chilled water temperature. So that, you know, from a, from a efficient operating machine design, it, it's, it's uh, really simple and elegant because the, the constraint of lubrication has been removed. And so what does this mean to, to lifespan? Well, if, just imagine in your car, if you could run your, your car without the need for oil, the associated oiling systems, and we had zero, we have, we have zero contact, right? So there's no contact, no wearing surfaces. The only failures that we have seen in uh, systems that we've been started up and commissioned are related to either a manufacturing defect or uh, wear of the moving parts that are in contact with each other that would regulate the inlet guide vanes, you know, and that's basically kind of a rack and pinion. And those are the only things we've seen fail. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, thinking back into the projects I've seen, and again, I get involved, you know, after or during installation, but after design decisions are made in, in performance contracts and, you know, the big centrifugal machines, have all been mag bearing, but I've only seen them in the last five or so years. And with those types of projects that can go out, you know, 23, 25 years, as far as the guarantee term, you know, that's obviously a big consideration and I'm sure they're, they're more expensive than an equivalent, you know, your like a standard technology chiller and yeah, no, I imagine a frictionless environment and it sounds amazing. And I would probably run forever too if I had no friction on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no gravity. It's all about gravity, right? Yeah. Right. It's interesting, though, even, you know, we saw early on, seven, eight years ago, uh, probably a 50% price premium for. Uh, magnetic, magnetically levitated bearing chillers. That's something you notice. Which was big, I would say. Now, uh, so what? That technology, though, from a performance perspective, leapfrogged everything that was on the on the market. So, and consequently, everybody else had to do what to combat it? Start to reduce their prices. All the all the conventional technology chillers became less expensive. And there were, you know, marketing campaigns. These will never work. Uh, you know, this is a flash in the pan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now everybody's making mag bearing chillers, and it's it's becoming, if it hasn't already become the standard. So, the the price premium, as bred by competition, has gone away. Uh, you can you can competitively bid mag bearing chillers and get some phenomenal numbers just like you always could with conventional chillers yeah it's amazing how uh i guess you're you're talking about it new technology can go through these rapid 
phases of a, of a product really in any market, you know, from, you know, skepticism to, you know, early adoption to now it's maybe becoming the standard of the chiller you buy is the mag bearing, possibly only rivaled by the coming surge in absorption chilling. <laughs> is that so? Is there a surge in absorption chillers? Well, I think, I think, uh, Nick is going to be the missionary man preaching the word of absorption chillers. <laughs> well, it's just, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I actually think that the topic around absorption chillers, their applications and the whole process really oh, could be it. another podcast. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because I mean, there are it, it, a lot of people you know, in the, in the typical commercial HVAC market, you don't see a lot of use for them anymore, but they have some great applications that make tremendous sense, particularly if you have waste heat or whatever, because their electrical use is so much lower than the, uh, the typical refrigeration cycle machines that we deal with in recips and trivical screws, everything that runs off of a compressor versus an absorption process. So we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this podcast up here. There's a little bit more to talk about. Um, we're going to have a episode dedicated to absorption chillers. There's a lot of great information about that. I know we, we kind of gave you a little bit of teaser, if you want to call it that, in the beginning of this episode, and then discuss different types of control strategies for these chillers as well. And I know we covered that a little bit in some other BMS podcast episodes, but Really, with that being said, I think we're going to wrap this podcast up. So thanks a lot for tuning in. Uh, Nick, thanks for joining us for the conversation. It was great to have you on the BMS podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Clayton. Not a problem. And stay tuned. We're going to keep this trend for our next BMS episode. We'll be discussing some more mechanical equipment, this time boilers. So stay tuned. Have a great day. And thanks a lot. For more information on us as well, tune into our web pages. VS Energy is www.vsenergy.us. For Trinity Automated Solutions webpage, check out their website, www.trinityas.com. For Nick's company, Applied Facility Science, check out their webpage, www.appliedfacilityscience.com. So thanks a lot, guys. Stay tuned for the next episode and have a great day.